And people misunderstand too, we're saved to a newness of life. We're not saved to go to heaven when we die. Going to heaven when we die is just the outcome. We're saved to live a life for Christ now. And we're going to be judged on that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's cover-to-cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today, we come to the book of 2 Corinthians, and to help us understand it better, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Ed Glasscock. Dr. Glasscock has spent decades pastoring churches, teaching theology, mentoring Christians, and writing books and articles. And we're grateful for his willingness to lend us his expertise today. Dr. Glasscock, thanks for helping us out. Well, thank you, Josiah. I appreciate the opportunity. When we come to Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, where do we find ourselves in the Bible? What's its context? Well, there's two major contexts that we need to understand for Corinth. One is the historical context. The city of Corinth was really a very successful, very wealthy community at certain points of its history. It was more prestigious than Athens. Uh, they were always in competition with Athens. And, uh, but it was a very religious city. It was also known as a grossly immoral city. It was somewhat equivalent, maybe, and I don't want to offend anybody from uh, Nevada, but like Las, Las Vegas or something, it was known that what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And uh, it was had actually two ports that they worked with for the ocean travels. They had a Navy base there. But they were also very well known for their prostitutions. As a matter of fact, the Temple of Aphrodite had supposedly 1,000 priestesses who were actually uh, temple prostitutes. And according to Strabo, an ancient Greek source, uh, many people went to Corinth just to participate in the pleasures of the temple worship with these prostitutes. And um, according to Estrophanes, uh, another Greek, philosopher, he coined a term Corinthianzomai, which means to live like a Corinthian. The implication was it was a very loose moral person. So this is the context in which Paul went and did ministry. He spent 18 months in Corinth, which was one of his longest tenures in any one place. Uh, he was going to leave, but remember God spoke to him in a vision, said, no, I have many people here, so stay here and do your job. And uh, he did. He had a very fruitful ministry there, especially among the Gentiles. He still had a lot of resistance from the Jews. But so anyway, uh, in the literary context, First Corinthians was written. People debate whether it's 54, 55, 56 uh, A.D. But Second Corinthians was written probably with the same year as most people assume. And um, it was because he had had this ministry there. And he wrote what's called the severe letter, which is what we call 1 Corinthians, which possibly is actually 2 Corinthians because of the missing letter that Paul references in 1 Corinthians. But anyway, Paul was at Corinth. He wrote back the severe letter, and which uh, some people call it the most negative writing in the New Testament. I don't consider it negative. I consider it certainly severe and uh, indication that sometimes pastors have to hurt people and get on them. I mean, there are several issues in 1 Corinthians that are addressed, uh, all kinds of immorality, uh, particularly the situation with incest. And by the way, incest was not unknown among the Greeks. And Paul's exhortation to church to take disciplinary action against that person. 
But also, remember, he called them immature, carnal, ignorant. He, he referred to them as thinking like mere human beings. And boy, I mean, he is, it's a stern letter. So he gets the letter, and then apparently he gets a report back. Uh, and the, the flow of events and the timing of these events is very debatable because Paul didn't worry about giving an outline of his agenda or whatever. But, but apparently he, was, he wrote again in the fall of the same year, and he wrote this letter, which to me is, is a letter of, of reconciliation, that he, he is congratulating them for responding to the things in that severe letter. But at the same time, you know, they were taking each other to court, lawsuits, and, and just all kind of earthly behavior. But apparently, it seems to me like they must have responded pretty well to some of that. And he seems pleased with that. But at the same time, he raises these issues uh, where he gets into defending himself and he pointing out the dangers that are still in the church there. So I find Second Corinthians, if you understand First Corinthians, you have to read First Corinthians, I think, to appreciate Second Corinthians. But I think that to me, it's a, a, a very warm letter. But you see Paul keeping his distance. You can see him wanting to reach out and embrace the Corinthians. And he wants to have that confidence to do that. He calls it the pride and that confidence to do that. But there's still uh, difficulties there that he has to deal with. And I, I think it's very painful to him. We, I think it's the most emotional letter Paul wrote. And that's saying a lot because he was pretty emotional in 1 Corinthians. But this is a little different. So I think that's the context we have to understand. This is in response to all that negative stuff going on in Corinth, uh, where he scolded them for not taking action against sin in the church. He writes back, he even talks about forgiving this person and restoring them, which is a tremendous thing. So I think he was pleased with the church, but he still felt he was rejected by the church to some degree. Is there a discernible structure to the book that can provide us maybe some guidance as we move through the parts? Yeah, I think you probably don't know where I'm coming with this. <laughs> they, they did not write in a Western style of writing with a nice outline, but I do think, uh, and there's differences of the way people take this book. Uh, chapters one through four is definitely Paul's defense of his ministry, very serious uh, defending his conduct and his ministry. Five through nine, just quite a list of instructions and exhortations. The challenge to faithfulness, uh, he's talking about in the support of saints and suffering, but encouraging them to be faithful in that. Then 10 and 12, to me, is very precious stuff. This is where he gives his own personal testimonies and his concerns really kind of flow out. And then chapter 13, what a, it's just the great ending to that book. So I, I see these four parts, which I, I think you have to deal with somewhat separately. But I think it's also important to understand Paul's style of writing is very disjointed. For me, it helps to understand Paul's thinking like uh, the Mississippi River or the Amazon River or the Nile River. I stood at the mouth of the Nile River in, in uh, Uganda where the um, uh, Lake Victoria, is it? I think it's Lake Victoria, but this incredible lake. And there's only one egress, one exit for all that water in Lake uh, Victoria. And it begins the mouth of the Nile River. Now, Ugandans claim that and other African countries claim they have it. But the point is, is that the Nile begins there and it's a powerful river and it travels from Uganda all the way down to Egypt and through Egypt out into the Mediterranean. And along the way, there are just hundreds and hundreds of tributaries 
that feed into that river. Same way with the Mississippi River or the Amazon River. Any major river is dependent on these tributaries. So in my thinking, Paul has something that he's saying, and it's this massive river. But he has these tributaries that feed into that, which to him gives substance to what he's saying. So I don't see these as disjointed things. I see them as he's dealing with a subject, and here comes this idea that flows into that. And he just takes it right into that discussion. Then he goes back to his main thing. And then later he's, he brings in these other events and these other thoughts and he feeds them in. So I see that, that Paul's thinking is disjointed. It's what my wife accuses me of having rabbit trails all the time, which you probably have noticed. I tell her I'm just copying Paul, but, but it really and truly is to be serious. You know, you look at these things, he's explaining himself. And so he gives all that background to it. And then he's defining godly ministry and a godly attitude for ministry. And so those things feed in. He's expressing concern for their spiritual health. And he's warning them against the false ministries of other people. And these are not just disjointed thoughts. They all fit into what he's doing there, trying to encourage and strengthen this church to be aware of who they are, where they are, what's going on, and how they do it. So the image of the river is very helpful. Let's talk about some of those tributaries now, perhaps. It seems that, as you mentioned, the first big chunk of this letter is concerned with Paul's apostolic decisions, credentials, and ministry. What's prompted such a seemingly tedious and lengthy self-defense? Yeah, I think that's going to help understand. If you grasp that, then you understand the letter. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 14, he talks about he accepts the fact they partially acknowledged him and his associates. So what he's looking for is I've got to help them make full acceptance. There is this partial acceptance. And then it appears that someone was accusing Paul of vacillating. So when he comes down to uh, chapter one, verse 15 through 21, he's explaining why he's not vacillating. He said, I'm going to come. And then he didn't come. So, and by the way, there's a wonderful section there where he says, I decided. Now, all of us who understand God and his sovereignty and and Paul's view of his life was God. It seems almost arrogant that Paul said, I decided. But again, it's part of that. If you understand where he's coming from, that his decision was based on God's prompting in his life and God's working in his life. But it also shows, I think, we take responsibility for decisions we make. And God may lead us into something, but we choose to do that based on the information God provides or the inclinations that God gives us. But so he's, he's been accused of vacillating in chapter one, 15 through 21 in chapter five, verse 12, he talks about those who boast about outward appearance, which kind of shifts it a little bit. He's, he's now not necessarily defending himself, but he's saying, I need to write this because there are people there stirring up trouble and they're basing their rights to their authority on their outward presentation of themselves and uh, in 511, Paul says, God knew what we are. And he doesn't say what we're doing. He says, God knows what we are in our being. So he's talking about his character. God knows his character. Because, see, he's, he's going to later on attack these people without character. But, and not only that, he says, as concerns what is in the heart. So I think the heart here is referring to his motives. So Paul is writing this letter in response to these accusations that oh, you can't trust Paul. He's flip-flops back and forth and all this stuff. And so he says, look, God knows my character and God knows my motive. So I'm good with that. You know, God has said in 513, he references if we have lost our senses. And I think that's funny too. Apparently people have accused Paul of 
going crazy because that's kind of what it means. The same accusation, by the way, the same word to lose your senses is used of Christ where his family came to get him because they thought he had lost his senses. They thought he'd flipped out and gone nuts or something. So, and sometimes, frankly, people that are really committed and dedicated to scripture do look a little insane. The word fanatic is used of Paul and it's used of most Christians who take a stand for scripture. But so he says, if we've lost our senses, it suggests that someone's making comments about him. So again, that motivates him to write. And then, but there are some very direct statements as to this too. In 6, 8, he says, we are treated as imposters. Paul is aware that he's being accused of being a fake, an imposter. So he, he writes this to defend himself. In chapter 10, verse 2, he says, some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh, some who think we're just being humans, uh, you know, trying to get attention. And then uh, chapter 10, verse 10 and 11, he says, for they say, these are accusations that he knows particularly they've made, that his letters are powerful, but in the flesh, he's weak. He's a weakling. And it's because he didn't come in flaunting his authority and beating people up with his uh, academic credentials or his spiritual credentials. But these are accusations being made. Look what they said about him in verse 11. His word is worth nothing. Now that would provoke me to sit down and write a letter. And so Paul's heard these things. Chapter 11, verse five, Paul says, if I am unskilled in speaking, this was another thing they accused him of, of, of not being a Greek orator. He wasn't a great homiletician. He wasn't impressive in the pulpit, so to speak. And he doesn't care because <laughs> this is where he says, I'm not rude in knowledge. You know, maybe I'm not skilled in speech, but I am skilled in knowledge. A verse chapter 12 or 16, he says he's been accused of, uh, I was crafty, you say, and got the better view by deceit. Wow, what an insult that is, that he's a con man, that he, he just uh, defrauded them by, you know, his craftiness. And then in uh, chapter 13, verse 3, he says, you were seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me. And so as you look at all those passages, Part of his defense is just that, defending himself uh, for the accusations that have been made that criticize him and make fun of him. He's a terrible speaker. His words are nothing. You know, why are you listening to him? He's a con man. But then there's a second flow of this as to why he wrote. Paul was aware of false teachers and self-appointed apostles that had come in the group. So he's writing not just to defend himself, but defend the church. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul sarcastically asked, do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation for you, to you? Do, do I have to have Peter write me a letter of recommendation for you? And he said, no, I've been with you. You've seen me. God's worked in me. You're the testimony of God's calling in my life. So anyway, he also warns that there are men who are false apostles and deceitful working uh, workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, chapter 11, verse 13. So I'm saying that Tremendous problems were in this church. There were enemies of Paul who tried discrediting him, tried to uh, downplay his authority, trying to uh, superimpose their teachings over Paul's. And uh, so he was challenged. And so he's writing back to answer those questions of his accusers and also to just warn them, be careful, because there are false apostles and deceivers. So I think that's the motivation, I guess you could call, for uh, his apostolic defense now right in the middle of that 
section of self-defense. We read this in chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Mm -hmm. Dr. Glasscock, many Christians may be under the impression that as believers, we're exempt from all judgment. Can you help us understand this concept rightly and how it should affect our discipleship in the now? Yeah. First of all, that's one of the biggest problems I confront in churches. I meet Christians all the time who say, Christ paid it all. I'm going to heaven. Nothing else matters. But, and I use this verse a lot. Notice it says, all of us. So Paul is even including himself in this group. Right. And he's not right. talking about the unregenerate world. He's talking about us in the church. He's talking to the Corinthian people. And we must appear. And the little word must is key because the little word day means it's necessary. It's required. So it's necessary that all of us appear before the Bema of Christ. I had the privilege of visiting the Bema in Corinth, where Paul was drugged before the mm -hmm. council in, in Corinth, before the Bema. It's used of Pilate's seat when he judged Jesus Christ. It's just a raised platform of, of dirt. They just where they build a, a wall and fill it with dirt, pack it down. They put seats on top where judges would sit or a seat where the judge would sit. And there's steps going up to that. And then right in front, there is still, even in, in ancient Corinth, uh, the remainder of what used to be kind of like a pulpit, a platform that came up like a speaker's table. We could put papers on it and stuff. And that's where the one being accused of a crime would be brought to that point, And the judge would sit on his chair up here and judge him. Abema was a judgment place. It's not a place of reward. I've heard people talk about it. It's a place of handing out rewards. Well, as far as I know from the quick survey I've done in the past, every use of the word Bema has this idea of a judgment, not, not a place of rewards, but a place where a person is judged. And like I said, it's, it's where Paul appeared at several Bemas, not just the one in Corinth, where the Roman governor would sit in judgment of him or Pilate judged Jesus Christ. So it's required then that all Christians are going to appear for Christ as a judge. And everybody has this impression of Jesus being this Mr. Rogers kind of a guy. And when you go to heaven, you're going to run up and embrace you. And, and I, first of all, there's nothing wrong with that kind of sentimental uh, look because Christ does love us very passionately. And I, But it doesn't negate the fact that as Christians, we're going to count for our lives. And that's why he says we would each one be paid back according to the things done. The word paid back means to return in kind or to pay what's owed, to give back what's required. And there's two categories of what you receive, good and bad, uh, or if your life is good, bad. All right. So first of all, let me explain. There are three judgment events talked about in the New Testament. One is the Bema, which is the first one mentioned, and I think the first to take place. The second is the judgment of sheep and goats in Matthew 25, where the issue is not where not to go to heaven, but whether or not those who survived the great tribulation and had been generous in protecting God's people were given the opportunity to enter into the kingdom, the kingdom that God had promised that was coming, coming, coming. Well, Christ is sitting there as a judge, determine who gets to go in the kingdom with him. They don't go into heaven there. They go into kingdom. And the assumption is that they will inherit life everlasting, but they're going in as physical human beings who are going to re reproduce and have children. And over the thousand years, uh, their children would become the very ones that rebel against God in the end, or some of them will. Okay. And then the third judgment is the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, 
which all the unsaved appear there. They brought up out of hell, out of Hades for this judgment, and then are cast in the lake of fire. And they're judged according to their works, which will condemn them all. They're not judged by mercy. They're judged by their works because they didn't come to God's grace for salvation and they're cast. Now, and the idea of good and bad, let me just say this. You're judged according to what you've done in your life is good or bad. And good means what's profitable, but it also means what satisfies a purpose, what lives up to the expectations. That's good. It's morally right to live as Christ dictates we live. By the way, that includes like loving your enemies. It includes dying to self. It includes having compassion on those who are lost, uh, who like Christ, will lay down his life for the purpose of the gospel being spread and to live in a life that uh, glorifies God. That's the good things. The bad is the opposite of that. And yes, it can mean worthless. And I had a pastor friend who used to teach, well, it just means what you do isn't worth anything. So you just don't receive rewards. No, you're paid back equally. And that that's probably is in the loss of rewards. But I don't think we need to trivialize that and blow it off. It's going to be a serious accounting. By the way, this isn't the only place. Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the parable of the talents is a picture of judgment for what you do with what you were given. Matthew chapter 6 and uh, verses 6 and then 16 through 18, Christ warns, if you're a hypocrite and you do things just to be seen in, there's no reward in that. You lose that reward. In Luke 6.35, we're to love our enemies, do good things, and lend without profit, which all those things bring reward. 1 Corinthians 3.8, participating in the spread of the gospel brings reward. Colossians 3.24, serving Jesus Christ brings reward. But for Christians who just think I'm going to heaven when I die, and that's all there is to this, and they meanwhile live to make profit, they live to... Uh, indulge in the fleshly pleasures of the world. And I'm not talking about pornography and all that, just the wealth and the prestige of power in the world. Those things are bad and it's going to cost them. So, you know, God has promised us great rewards and great blessings for our faithfulness. And he, you lose all that by not being faithful to the cause of Christ. And it doesn't mean going to church and being religious. It means doing the things like I just listed there in first Corinthians three and Colossians 3 and Luke 6, just places where specific things are mentioned, these things are good works and they bring reward. I think these rewards are those things that will be applied during the millennial kingdom, that faithfulness will bring your position in the kingdom, your prestige, so to speak, in the kingdom. And we live not to gain prestige and power and wealth in this world, because it's all going to fade away. We live to uh, bring the rewards of Christ that we'll receive in that thousand year reign of Christ, where we'll rule with him, we'll uh, enjoy the prosperity of the kingdom and so on and so forth. So I think it's a very serious part of the Christian life that's being ignored. It's not a positive thing. And uh, that Christians need to realize they are accountable for how they live. Is this one of the ways that we can, as Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? A great parallel. Sure is, yeah. I think that's exactly what he's talking about. We live our lives investing in the future rewards. And when Paul talked about, look, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the hunger, the nakedness I've gone through, all these things I've suffered are not worthy to be compared to the glory to come. And he's looking forward to the things that God has for him. And critics of Christianity call it the pie in the sky. Oh, you're just living for that pie in the sky. And they make fun of that. Yes, I am. 
uh, I'm living for what's coming. See? And I think that the Bema of Christ is a reminder. What I'm doing today is going to be brought up before Christ. And that's the reason, by the way, I believe in 1 John 1, 9, just several times a day. <laughs> you know, get on your knees and confess to God. Because if you confess your failings, then God is faithful and just forgive you and cleanse you of those things. And I don't want to go up to the bame of Christ carrying a lot of baggage with me that I don't want to account for. Mm-hmm. But can you imagine looking Jesus Christ square in the face and him saying, Ed, why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? You know, accountability. Listen, God is a just God, not just loving God. And those that have sacrificed and suffered for Jesus Christ will not be put in the same bucket with those that have lived indulging in the flesh and being religious, but not taking it too seriously and busy making an uh, empire for themselves in this world. Those two groups will not stand equal before Christ. That's all there is to it. And people misunderstand, too. We're saved to a newness of life. We're not saved to go to heaven when we die. Going to heaven when we die is just the outcome. We're saved to live a life for Christ now. And we're going to be judged on that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the justice of God. Because it seems that if we ignore the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ and flatten out everyone's life to be this equal opportunity, equal experience in the kingdom and in eternity then it seems to go against at least a little bit the justice of God. Absolutely. Not a little bit. I think it demeans God's justice to make it nothing. Well, let's move on in 2 Corinthians into chapters 8 and 9, because in those chapters, Paul talks about Christian giving and generosity. So I'm wondering if you could summarize for us the contents of those two chapters and how we today should think about those same topics. Okay. First, it is not a justification for tithing. This has nothing to do with tithing. It's matter of fact, it's the exact opposite of the philosophy of tithing. First of all, Paul brings up in chapter eight the example of the Macedonian churches, and that's he's everything he's saying uh, flows from this tributary of the Macedonian church and how it impacted his life. Okay, the Macedonians gave even in their poverty, beyond their means, of their own free will, and insisted on the privilege of contributing. You know, here it is. What are they giving for? It's not for the building program of the church. It's not for the pastor's salary. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a different issue. But what he's dealing with is that the Jerusalem church was suffering persecution. And also Agabus has predicted this incredible famine that was coming to Judea. So now all these Gentile churches all over Asia Minor and Turkey and and whatever, were called upon by these Jewish apostles to send relief to the brothers who are in Jerusalem, in Judea. And so uh, chapter 8, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 12, Acts chapter 2, verse 45, Acts chapter 4, verse 35, Acts chapter 11, 28 through 30. Uh, this is all appeals to give money for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So this is not talking about taking up money for the church services. And there's, this is not contradicting that. This is above and beyond uh, supporting your minister or sending out missionaries, that sort of thing. Uh, contributing to a building that you can meet in. That's, well, that's 
I think comes into this other situation of contributing to the ministry. And there is a lot of that mentioned as well. Paul defends his right to take a salary. He uh, scolded the Corinthians because he robbed the Philippian church, taking wages from them because the Corinthians weren't generous enough to financially support him. And so, but he's trying to communicate to, to the Corinthian church. And this is not about paying Paul a salary. He constantly points out, this is a ministry to the saints, meeting the needs of others. In Romans 12, 13, Paul commands the Roman church says, being devoted to one another in brother, brotherly love, contributing to the needs of the saints. And I think that's that's the idea. Gail and I had the privilege of sending some money to Ukraine. Uh, one of my f- translators when I was in Ukraine, the second first visit, uh, his, his name is Yuri. And um, Yuri is still in Ukraine. He had opportunity to leave. His wife is an American. Uh, and she was in America when all this trouble started. Instead of him going to America to be with his wife, she came to Ukraine. And here's this American woman living through all this horrible pain and destruction in Ukraine. And I, I get emails from her about once a week. And sometimes I send personal questions and she's able to respond back. And, and uh, But they have a little church in Texas. And I have shared that uh, email address and the phone number of that church because they, they, they are not taking a nickel for anything that comes in for Yuri and his wife and their ministry in Ukraine right now, they send it all. So we've encouraged people to get into that. Uh, Boy, who has more needs right now than these saints in Ukraine? And uh, listen, they're not using it for themselves. Uh, They're using this to buy food and distributing it. They buy gasoline and a van to get people to the borders. And, um, I, I love them. Uh, I just grieve for them. But as a part of Christian love, I'm to contribute to that. And I really think that's the point in chapters eight and nine. It's not about supporting your local church. It's about being compassionate to those that are in need. And so the Macedonians didn't use their poverty as an excuse to not give. They gave and uh, not just, well, this is what we can afford to give. They went beyond what they could afford to give. And Nobody coerced them into it. Nobody put a guilt trip on them because they weren't tithing. Nobody, you know, lectured them on the need of being a generous giver. Uh, They gave. Now, he, Paul mentions being a generous giver to the Corinthians because they didn't understand that. But the Macedonians, who were the role model, they understood that. They didn't have to be coerced or to them. They insisted on it. It was part of their mindset. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They need my help. Here's what I can give, and I'll give more than that. So I think we also should have that spirit and attitude of if my brothers have need, uh, I've got plenty of resources. I need to be giving that. If you were going to pastor me toward rightly handling my money in a generous way, are there any biblical principles on a hierarchy of giving? So you mentioned the local church, and I want to care for my local assembly. But then you mentioned these above and beyond needs that we hear about in the broader body of Christ. But then I think we should probably not rule out being generous to unbelievers around us as well. So I have a set amount of money. I have an income and I want to give generously. I think Paul goes into in chapter 9, as God is our motivation because he's generous, I want to be generous. So how would you pass me toward rightly allocating those funds? What priorities should I give these needs? Or is that really just between me and the Lord? Well, I think it's between you and the Lord, but I think you have to have the right understanding. First of all, you're a steward of God's gift. It's not your money. 
the God provides, and that's when he talks about God provides seed for the sower. God provides everything you give away. He's going to make sure you have what you need. He's not saying, like I said, Gil and I, uh, we, we feel guilty sometimes that we're so comfortable and we have a, a very nice, it's a very tiny little house, but it's in a beautiful location and it's very comfortable. But here's the thing. I think that what we need to understand, and Americans have a hard time with this because in America, we're very capitalistic. It's my money. I earned it. And I can, I remember having a serious talk with a man in my church because he was upset about something and came to my church, came to my office and we were talking and I pointed out, well, whose money is it? He said, well, it's my money. I earned it. I said, no, whose money is it? And he looked at me kind of strange and asked him a third time, whose money is it? And it dawned me, he was a good Christian guy, you know, but he had been brought up in this thing. I earned this. See, it's mine. I'm not like these lazy people out here living on welfare. I earned it. And you don't have anything that God hasn't given to you. And why does he give it to you? Not for self-indulgence. And that's not just true of money. It's everything around us. God provides all of our needs. Christ said, seek the kingdom of God first. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. They, and th those aren't peripheral issues. Those are everyday issues. What you eat, what you wear, uh, that you got clothes to put on, you got food to eat. Those are daily needs. And Paul, at crisis, don't, don't worry about that. You don't focus on that. You seek God's kingdom first. He'll add those things. He'll add everything you need to your life. And so, first of all, it's a matter of trusting God for that. Number two, it's an awareness that everything I have is God's. I'm simply managing it for him, a steward of it. And so if God blesses you with abundance, then you give abundantly. If God blesses you with just enough, then you still give out of that money. So I think those two issues, it's a matter of living with faith in the coming kingdom of God and trusting God to provide for your needs. So therefore, you can give it away. You can turn loose of it because that's not what helps you. It's God who helps you. The second thing is that what I do have is God's property that I'm supposed to manage for him, for his glory and honor. And But I think, again, those are concepts like the Bama Christ that are just not known to the average Christian. They, It's a matter you give your tithe and then God's happy with you. And meanwhile, build your third home in Bermuda and, you know, yeah, buy that 80 foot yacht. That's OK. I mean, and. Uh, really, I don't know. That's not between me and them. That's between them and God. But do you really need these things that we indulge ourselves on? And I just wish Christians could get a view of God's bigger program. Did I Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. If my brother's in Ukraine or hurting and need food and clothing and stuff, then it's my job. It's my responsibility to be a part of that. If my church is doing the ministry of the gospel. And if the pastor is doing his job of equipping the saints for ministry, uh, then I need to be a primary support in that. You know, my assembly. So you talk about a hierarchy. I think you take care of your family, but not for the luxury items, not for the, you know, going to Europe every year, just to, for the kids to enjoy Europe, but making sure those kids have what they need and they live it a life that is showing responsibility for them. And then I think your local assembly is next. I do. I believe that. That's the body Christ has put you in. But it's not just giving a set amount every month to help support the finances of the church. It's to be sensitive to people in the church. Anyway, I don't think there's anything wrong with 
teaching people priorities. But the main thing is for them to understand it's not their money. It's God's money. He's blessed them with it. They can use for themselves. And I don't think God resents that, but not to the point of sacrificing what God wanted that money to be used for. Now, near the end of the book, in chapter 12, we find two relatively familiar little sections, Mm -hmm. Paul's vision and Paul's thorn. Could you briefly walk us through those passages and draw out some modern-day implications for us? Yeah. See, that's interesting because uh, when you mentioned that would be in our discussion, I never really thought about them that much separately. Uh, And they're not separated. Of course, they're linked. But the vision, uh, he goes back to 14 years ago. And he talks, he's not addressing it as himself. He's putting it third party. I know a man. But then, of course, things in the context where he talks about chapter 12 or 6, he talks about so that no one would think more of me. And then he goes on to say, keeping me from being. So I don't think there's any doubt. He's talking about himself and receiving this vision. 14 years ago would have made that around 42 AD, which is approximately the time he was saved. And we know that for three years, he didn't see anybody. He went into Arabia, and there he says he was taught by Christ alone. In First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, in Galatians chapter 1, and verses 12 through 18, he describes this, that he wasn't taught by the apostles about Christ. He wasn't taught his doctrine by some religious teacher, that Christ taught him personally. And so I think this vision he's talking about, whether it was in the body or the spirit, he, he wasn't even aware it was just, it's a little bit like John being carried by the Spirit up in the heaven to see the things in Revelation. And Paul was in this situation, and I think it's where Christ took him apart and taught him things. He said, some of these things I can't even talk about. Some of these things are beyond explaining. And uh, But these revelations that he received first on, and I think this is why it was the very first part of his ministry, when he was, before he met Peter, before he went up to Jerusalem, uh, he was trained for three years by Christ, just like Christ trained the other disciples or apostles for three years. And so he's taught personally, and that's a big part of Paul's identity. I wasn't taught this by human beings. Okay, And so I think that's the event of this, what he calls this vision. And he's trying to not make it about, boy, I, Christ called me up and talked to me. You know, he's trying to say, look, just think about this. Here's this guy over here. And he receives all this information that is just too wonderful and too deep to even share with people. And it's impacted my life. In connection with that, <laughs> I was given a thorn in the flesh. And uh, so I see the two as linked in this way, is that uh, the thorn, and it's interesting, the use of that word, it really literally meant a, a wooden stake. But in Septuagint use, it came like a splinter or a thorn. And it's from Satan. I have a messenger, he calls it, from Satan. And this physical discomfort, uh, it's bodily affliction, which was to uh, remind Paul, he's only flesh. And so you have these two things. It's a messenger of Satan, but it's God who brought it into his life. And Satan uses, I mean, excuse me, God uses Satan all the time for things. And he uses evil people to do things for his purpose but he petitioned god three times take it away as he says and god's answer is no i won't take it away but i'll give you grace to deal with it and so he dealt with it and so apparently this was true of all of his ministry now the issue then becomes what was this thorn 
And of course, there are many theories as to what this thorn is, as there are human beings in Christianity. And Paul doesn't give any indication. It seems to be a physical disability. That much we know. It's a thorn in the flesh, not a thorn in his spirit or in his heart. Uh, this is a physical problem. And it's something that's a continual pain, continual distraction from him. So I don't know. Too many speculations for that. But it was what eventually brought Paul to realize he was weak flesh. And that's a good thing. Not that he's weak flesh, but that he recognized it. And so with all this information he has, all this knowledge he has, it doesn't puff him up. It reminds him that I'm mere flesh. And if God doesn't do this for me, I can't do it. And that's a very strong theme throughout Paul's ministry. And he even talks later about God giving him the grace for ministry because he's not confident in himself. So the purpose is twofold for this thorn in the flesh. Satan, on the one hand, uses it to torment Paul, to try and discourage Paul and, and hinder him in what he's doing. And secondly, God used it to keep Paul from being puffed up with pride. And I think God lets us fall on our face quite often for that very thing. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing for us to realize that with the privilege of being called to ministry and with the privilege of knowledge and opportunities to do ministry, here's a great responsibility to not try and take credit for it ourselves. So I think if we're honest, all of us would have to say, that we all have a thorn in the flesh. If we're serving Christ, Satan is going to harass us. And by the way, the word torment, where Satan messenger torments me, it's really, to, the word can mean harass and to trouble people. And I think we in our flesh have that. And the purpose of that is Satan is trying to discourage us with all these things that hurt us and that frustrate us. But at the same time, God uses that to remind us that it's not about you. I like going to theater. Gail and I just go to theaters in Chicago and see live performances. It's, it's fun. And uh, so anyway, but I had this vision of this guy comes out on the stage and he sits at a little table on the stage over in one corner of the stage. And in his mind, he's saying, remember your cue, uh, speak up loudly. And he's tutoring himself and how he's going to perform his part. Okay. Meanwhile, these actors over here doing all this other stuff. And then there's like a loud explosion. And suppose and the actor that's so into his mind about being this big actor falls over. Okay. And that's, that's it. So here he is rehearsing in his mind, how important he is and how great this is and how he's going to be a star for this. And really he's a bit player. And I think every now and then God lets me know that I'm a bit player. I'm not the star of the show. Christ is the star of the show. And isn't that what he's going to say? That Christ receives the glory and not the servant. And I, I try and remind myself of that a lot. It's not about me. Who's getting glory here? It's not about me. All I want to do is be a good spokesman. I, I'm to represent Jesus Christ. He's to get the glory and not me. And I've got thorns and you've got thorns. And Satan's idea in that is to discourage us and, and distract us from ministry. God's purpose in that is to remind us, that, you know, I can do this. You just sit there. <laughs> well, what would you say is the main thrust of Second Corinthians? If you had to boil it down to a single purpose, what would it be? I really think it's defining the struggles of ministry. Hmm. I, I really think you see Paul's heart that he's hurt with these people. 
These are people he loved and gave himself to fully, and they're not fully returning that. And I, But I think it's just, uh, to me, the point of what he's saying for us, as we look back at it, is we, we look at him and we say, this is a role model for ministry. Here's a guy who's been attacked, and he retaliates in a very gracious way, just explaining himself and warning people about these false teachers, but he's not name calling and challenging the Corinthians to throw them out of the church or anything like that. I think the book boils down to, if I want to know how to do ministry, I need to read this book. If I want to know that God knows who I am and knows my heart, which I think is key to Paul saying that God knows who we are and he knows our heart. And I want to be able to, to relax and feel comfortable with God knowing my heart and with God knowing my character and that's a struggle sometimes. The heart is a wicked thing, and it's easily deceived. And it's So that, to me, is boiling it down. And not just pastoral ministry, but any ministry. As you said, the church exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so all Christians should heed the instruction in this book. Is that right? That's, boy, I'm glad you said that, because I didn't make that point. But yes, I think that's key. And even the Giving aspect is how you minister to people in need. That's very key. Uh, how you how you respond to the word of God, preaching through Second Corinthians, uh, having discipleship classes for people in your church, going through Second Corinthians. I think it'd be very profitable for everyone involved. How has God used this book in your life, Doctor Glasscock, to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? To me, one of the interesting things is that we just discussed that weakness does not exclude someone from ministry. Because sometimes I think, at least I know I do, and I think many other people have asked question whether or not you should be there. First Corinthians one twenty seven says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things which are mighty. And I think admitting that you're weak and that you're dependent on the Spirit of God, I doesn't, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Key there, if you walk according to the leading of the Spirit. So the spirit has to direct your life and everything. So none of us are spiritual enough to be servants of Christ. And I think knowing your weaknesses and confessing those weaknesses, the first step to being an effective servant of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's, that's, that's what we want. I think the second thing in that. So the first thing is just I learned from this that weakness is not what disqualifies you from ministry, but responding to that weakness as being dependent upon God and acknowledging it's your flesh is not capable of doing these things. That is actually the first step to making you uh, usable by God. Also, Paul is a role model. Like I mentioned earlier, his explanation of his biblical philosophy of ministry, chapter four, verse one, therefore we have this ministry as we receive mercy. I'm in ministry because God's grace and mercy, not because I deserve it, not because I'm smarter than other people or I'm more godly than other people, but because of his mercy calling me. And he says, therefore, don't lose heart. He says, we've renounced the hidden things of shame. Just put that away. You can't cover up shameful things. You get it out of your life. You, you deal with it in the church. You don't, you renounce those things uh, that bring shame. And then third, not walking in craftiness. And it means to be clever. And it's not how clever you are. It's not what genius ideas you come up with. It's not how great you are at communication. See, it's, it's not cleverness. 
we don't live our lives in this craftiness, being outsmarting and doing. And it says, nor adulterating the word of God. And it's interesting. That means to corrupt the word of God. But it, it actually, in some contexts, the idea is that you're not, there's two concepts. One, using the word of God for your own profit. Or as one translation used to put it, not not marketing the word of God. Not, you don't use the word of God for your own personal gain and benefit. And then, but also this word adulterating is, is the idea of adjusting it. You don't adjust the scriptures to suit the context. You don't adjust your personal context. You don't adjust the scriptures for your purpose or agenda. So that kind of integrity strikes me. And then he says, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It's my responsibility as a servant of God to live openly. People judge you. People look at what you're doing. So, yeah, sometimes we resist this temptation to go overboard on certain things because that might cause somebody to stumble. I think living with that awareness of people around you. And then he says in verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about my size of church. And it's about Christ. And we just need to keep focus on preaching Christ and not worrying about promoting ourselves. So all these things are philosophies of ministry that I see in Paul. They remind me that I need to be careful how I'm living out in public. I need to be careful that I don't cause other people to stumble by my liberties and my freedoms or my interpretation of scripture. I need to be careful that I'm not adulterating the word of God. I need to be careful that I'm serving Christ and glorifying Christ. So as you can see, I had a lot of things in that book. Well, thank you again for all the time you've given us today, Dr. Glasscock. Very much appreciated helping us understand 2 Corinthians a little bit better. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.